Welcome to our podcast series on leadership. In this series, we'll be talking with Australian business and community leaders to learn more about them and try to understand what makes them effective in their roles. What do they see as the most important attributes of a good leader? What are the toughest challenges they've had to face? How do they deal with them? And what do they draw from in the process? My name's Steve Mabs, and I'm the CEO of business and digital consultancy Essient. My organisation's been fortunate enough to have worked with leaders in over 100 organisations across many industry sectors. We've seen them in action, leading their organisations through transformational change and other major challenges. With the huge impact that coronavirus is having, we felt it was timely to gain some insight into how leaders are effectively dealing with not only this, but other challenges facing their organisations. To help kick us off, I'm privileged to be joined today by Paul Edgerton, the CEO of SYC, a large national not-for-profit headquartered in Adelaide. Welcome, Paul, and thanks for joining us. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me. Can I start by asking uh, for you to tell us a bit about SYC, uh, its mission and the impact that it's having? Sure. Uh, SYC uh, was founded in Adelaide in 1958. Uh, We are a human service organisation that works with uh, Australians of all ages, we, we work with about 60,000 people a year. Uh, we help them find um, a home, we help them find work, uh, help them uh, deal with uh, trauma uh, and things like uh, uh, mental illness and um, confidence and learning. We help them connect with education and training. So it's, a, it's a, an organisation whose primary purpose is to assist people to live better lives than they're experiencing. The not-for-profit sector, or the for-purpose sector, as it's sometimes called, seems to be quite a crowded and competitive sector. How do you differentiate in a market like that? Yeah, it is. It, there's there's lots of conversations that go on around the not-for-profit sector. Um, there are lots of people who uh, have never worked in the not-for-profit sector seem to be experts on it, which is always interesting. There are also other remarks about how uh, it is crowded or there are too many not-for-profits. And when I've met people, whether they're politicians or, or people in the community say, oh, you know, there are too many not-for-profits, I go, oh, okay, how many are there and what's the right number then? And of course, that, there's never an answer for that one. Um, but it is certainly it's a competitive sector um, in terms of um, there are limited resources and lots of demand. And and certainly during this COVID period or times of bushfire or or other emergency, uh, there is always more demand than we have resources in the not for profit or the for purpose sector. What differentiates SYC is that we continuously think about the value of our work. And what I mean by the value of our work, in an, in a, in an area of limited resources, it is important that we focus on the areas that have most need and therefore provide the best return on funders' investment in it. Now, often what is easy to do is to work with people who are of, um, I guess, limited disadvantage or to work with people in a narrow sort of 
program field. You might work with only homelessness or only employment or only training or any of those things. But at SYC, we try and work with a whole person. People don't experience um, unemployment. They experience life and their life, uh, if they don't have a job, has many more complexities than just not having a job. Uh, And so our uh, role at SYC is to not just help them find a job, but help them to address all of the other issues that may be going on. And that means we have to be an organisation that is wealthy enough to be able to provide all of those services. And that's sometimes not a language that not-for-profit organisations use um, and has sometimes been uncomfortable for us to use. But I think in order to invest in professional services for people who need our help, we need to be able to pay for those and fund those professional services and sustain them for as long as the clients that come to us need us to. Yeah, you mentioned funding, Paul, uh, um, and and how competitive it is to get that funding. What are your sources of funding? Yeah, so nearly all of our funding comes from fee-for-service contracts. A popular misconception of the not-for-profit sector is that somehow we are given money by government to do things. Uh, However, that's not the reality. The reality is that uh, nearly all, 97%, in fact, of our income comes from the delivery of fee-for-service contracts. That means fee-for-service simply means we don't get paid if we don't deliver an outcome. And we, certainly in the employment world, we compete with large for-profit companies in those respects, certainly ones with much greater resources than we have, but we're aiming for the same objective. But interestingly, when it comes to funding and the language that sometimes, and it's more than sometimes, pretty frequent, people say, oh, do you get government money or do you get government grants? My answer is simply this, and that is that we have done the economic analysis on the value of SYC's work, uh, particularly in finding people work and finding them safe homes to live in. And for every dollar of government funding we receive, we return an economic value of $6.33, or six times the $1 that the government provides in fee-for-service funding. If I said to you that I was going to get your superannuation, particularly at the moment in the COVID environment, but if I got your superannuation and I increased it sixfold every year, would you want to invest in me? So how do you measure that uh, economic value, Paul? So there's a whole range of ways you can do that. We use um, a a range of – there's a – Ideally, what we Australia would end up coming up with is what's called an outcomes rate card, uh, where different outcomes carry with it a different value of what's called avoided cost. So, for example, the avoided cost associated with somebody who um, has been out of work for a number of years, uh, if you find them full-time work and they go off welfare, What the the data shows is that people who 
come off welfare and work full time are less likely to rely on the to use the health system because their general health improves, their mental health improves. Mm. They, of course, convert from being a net receiver of taxpayer dollars to a net contributor of taxpayer dollars. Um, and they are more likely to be uh, uh, reducing their debts and less likely to be engaged in the criminal justice system uh, and less likely to be involved in domestic violence. So you can start to add those factors up uh, of reduced police attendance, reduced ambulance attendance, uh, reduced emergency um, presentations at hospital, uh, reduced um, imprisonment, and of course, becoming a taxpayer um, adds up very quickly to a lot of money um, in what's called avoided cost. So it sounds like in your organisation, uh, to be successful, you not only need to drive the outcomes in terms of social impact, but also manage it like a business, um, because obviously you're competing for funding alongside other organisations. Um, so how does that uh, sort of reflect in the culture of the organisation that you've that you've created at SYC, and, and how do you how do you drive and maintain that culture? Yeah, it, look, SYC. I, I've spent my early career in the for-profit world, and uh, I know there are there are organisations around the world that would love to have a culture as strong as our culture at SYC. Um, our culture at SYC is built on a set of uh, beliefs and values, and we have four. Um, on posters on every wall uh, on all of our website and the words are really important to us so the first the first one and you'll hear it um, uh, not only referred to by our people a lot but you can see it in evidence in our culture we have a relentless belief in people and their potential some people believe that there was a negative association with relentlessness um, we decided that that was not um, that was not how we would we would own the word relentless differently from that and and it means that um, we don't give up on people we don't use cheap excuses to not work with people we believe in and that includes our whether it's our staff our suppliers our friends in the bureaucracy or people that come along and request our service the other values within our culture that we live and breathe every day it is recognising the value and rewarding courage shown by our employees and the people who come to seek our services. It's amazingly courageous for anybody, but particular, particularly somebody who's experienced um, abuse or a form of trauma, to come and ask for help. Uh, and our, our employees are amazingly brave and courageous and innovative and responsive to those people. And so we recognise and value it and, and reward the things that it takes to provide great service to people who are vulnerable. The third trait is in our, in our culture, which is really important, is we create trust in order to achieve better results. We often talk about the idea that collaboration travels at the speed of trust. And um, it is a, a word that's overused um, and abused, and, but it is something that is vitally important for us to do as we say and, and say what we do. Um, and the final part of it is, is linked to that trust, and that is we deliver deeper impact by working together. 
Um, and again, in when uh, government funding is often tendered out in a competitive tendering process, it does set organisations up against each other. And although that is a component of uh, the reality of the way we work, um, it doesn't have to be the overwhelming way. And we, so we believe in, in you know, we're, we're very strong competitors and, and ferocious competitors, uh, but at the same time, we, we also know that we have to link with other organisations and, and pool our resources to get the best results. So you so you t- you team with other not for profit organisations in the same sector uh, sometimes to win uh, tenders and uh, and funding and and then work with them to deliver the outcomes uh, together. Uh, sometimes it's not for profits and uh, oftentimes it's for profits. We have some uh, great relationships with some of the large for profit organisations who value the quality of practice. Um, the, the, the challenge that a for-profit often has is they have to pay a dividend and they're un, under pressure to do that. And so they run thin on practice development sometimes or they run thin on um, clinical support or practical support for their staff. We don't run thin on those things. So yeah. that um, makes uh, some of the services that we have to offer richer uh, and uh, better suited to um, contracts. So. Um, however, they often have better resources to ramp up um, large ventures. So as a combination, we don't just partner with not-for-profits. We often partner with for-profits. Yeah, fantastic. So each organisation brings its own strengths to the table. Yeah. So it sounds like you've got a fairly clear uh, set of values and beliefs that you work within. Um, how do you then, um, when you're bringing people into your organisation, do they do they buy into those as well? And, and is that something that you talk about and share stories about and, and, and uh, measure the organisational performance around? Yeah, we certainly do. I think... Um, I guess if you look at um, the staff turnover as a measure, we um, where our staff turnover is at, at its highest, and I, I don't know how this goes in other organisations. I'm sure it's the same, but um, most of our turnover happens in the first six months. Um, and then if you get past the first two years, you seem to last for a very long time at SYC. Uh, and a reason that I think it happens... Uh, the turnover is in the first six months is because a, a, a few things happen. One is um, the optimists um, find that it's much harder to um, do the, the work that we do than they initially thought. So anybody who comes in thinking I'm going to save the world and do nice things all the time um, finds that it is a lot of hard work um, mm. and there's a lot of administration to do. Um, but I think uh, I think also we have a really fierce culture of uh, trying to achieve positive results and we are not great with excuses um, about not being able to do that. Uh, So a couple of, I guess, cultural markers um, are that, you know, and they were pretty controversial 18 years ago when I joined, Um, but one of the things that I remember coming in with and saying, our staff are not our clients. Um, <laughs> and it was, what does that mean? But in our, in our, in our space, um, we, you know, we, we work, we're working with people who are, you know, really experiencing disadvantage in their lives and need a lot of support and a lot of care. Um, 
And what we were doing is having that level of, um, I guess, care and carefulness with some of our underperforming staff as well and and getting a bit confused um, where we would have staff who were saying, but I'm doing really nice work, but you're not hitting any KPIs or not achieving any outcomes and not achieving positive outcomes for the people we're working for as we're measuring them. Um, and there'd be all these, and they'd say, oh, yeah, but, you know, they're, they're, um, they're trying their best uh, and all of that sort of stuff. And we're like, you know, our staff are not our clients. The people that we're working with are disadvantaged and they need us to be performing at our best every time. Uh, and so the, the staffing at our clients was a really challenging part of our culture, um, but it was really an important part about converting to a performance orientation in our in our work. The other part that we um, that was fairly controversial to make our uh, people and culture sh- people shudder for a while when I used to say it. But <laughs> I'd say that you know. They, they, Initially, they said it was industrially unsound, and later on, we found that it wasn't industrially unsound. <laughs> but I would come to inductions and with our new staff and talk about how the three ways you could get fired. And they'd get, but I've just started here, and you're coming to talk to me about how I get fired. But I said it's really important. Now this is part of the induction. <laughs> part of the induction. It's really important that you understand how you're going to get fired from here, so that way you can avoid it happening. Um, Reason one is you're spectacularly incompetent. If you if you if you're not the best at your job, um, then um, you know we, we're going to train you and teach you. But if you're you know stubbornly not going to be the best at your job, we probably don't need you here. And there are lots of not for profits who would welcome you, um, and maybe some for profits would welcome you too. The second part is if of course you um, break the law in a way that's you know harm somebody or hurt somebody or steals from somebody. We're just not interested. The third way to get fired is if you gossip about your work colleagues behind their back. And the reason that is that's when the people and culture people are like, oh, boy, I'm not sure that's industrially sound. Um, But, you know, in our world, in the world that we work in with disadvantaged people, our staff from a health and safety point of view have to know that the energy they are focusing outwards into their clients is rewarded and that they don't have to then look over their shoulder and worry about what their work colleagues are saying about them behind their back. We need to be a safe workplace and that means an emotionally safe workplace. And in in modern Australia, we know that now um, and we have workplace bullying is, you know, is really well covered and really important. But back 18 years ago, it wasn't such a clear thing back then, but it was clear to me that if I wanted our staff to focus all their energy on serving our clients, they needed to not waste energy worrying about what their work colleagues were thinking. And any work colleague who wanted to waste our precious resources on doing that needed to be freed up for opportunities to um, work somewhere else. It sort of comes back to uh, one of those four values that you talked about, about um, amplifying the impact uh, of what you're doing by working together. Exactly. So it sort of uh, reinforces that point as well. Yeah. How would, if I asked one of your team to describe your style of leadership, what would they, what would they say, do you think? 
they would say that I'm um, very energetic, um, that I've um, – <laughs> that if they've had they've been caught in a long meeting with me that they have to remind me that people need to stop and have lunch or have a <laughs> toilet break. Uh, so I can sometimes get a bit task focused and concentrate for a, an extended period of time. They would say that um, I am really passionate about SYC and passionate about the work that we do and the people that I work with um, and that Passion comes with its uh, positives and its it, and negatives. It's yin and yang. Um, they would say that I um, am really innovative and um, um, entrepreneurial, uh, and I would think that they would say, and I'm pretty sure uh, they would say, I'm um, pretty hard to say no to. I don't take no for an answer very well. <laughs> and you know, out of all of the um, the, the values that you demonstrate as a leader to your people, um, what do you think the most important ones are or the most important one? What, what do your people look to you uh, the most uh, to demonstrate in your role as a leader of the organisation? That I am, I remain calm when everything, when everything is going, um, is heightened and stressful or uncertain, uh, that I am somebody that they look to with some confidence that I will remain calm and find a way out of it. I guess one of the things that I've been blessed with I, is, a, is a high level of abstract reasoning. So complexity and uncertainty doesn't bother me. And what I've found over time is that it bothers a lot of people, um, but it doesn't bother me. Uh, so I think that um, my staff most value in me that I remain calm and am able to work out how to respond to different and complex situations. Who, who comes up with the ideas at SYC? Well, I'd like to think that lots of people do at SYC. Um, I do have a regular, probably once or twice a year, my execs have to round me up and say, Paul, no more ideas. Can you please let us finish? <laughs> please let us finish the ones we're working on before you come up with the next one. Um, so I guess that is a bit of an indictment on how much uh, I, time I spend coming up with ideas. But, you know, I really love, I love a lot. I don't mean that euphemistically. I, I mean it literally. I, I just love listening to the f people who work on the front line of our organisation coming up with ideas for doing stuff better. Um, and I just love that. So, you know, I encourage them to do it and, and they do. Um, I probably get too enthusiastic about it uh, sometimes and have to be reined in a little bit. <laughs> what, what do you see as the biggest challenges going forward for SYC and, and I guess more generally uh, the not-for-profit sector? I think the challenge going forward, there's, there's, there's quite a number, but let me go to the heart of what I think the challenge for not-for-profits in Australia is, and that is a really uh, poor level of understanding and a low value put on the quality of our work. I, I sort of I get in trouble from time to, fairly regularly um, 
because I react badly to being patted on the head. So it's like, oh, I, you know, you get people saying, oh, must feel really, you must feel really good about working in the not-for-profit sector and helping all those people. And um, I say, yes, of course I do. But, you know, we could do so much more with the value of our work if our work was actually valued. So what I mean by that is, is this, is that um, we compete against for-profit companies uh, and we compete uh, really well, you know, so our performance is at, at least equal to sometimes and often better. Um, but we do it with one arm tied behind our back. And let me put that into perspective. When you when you look at the media uh, who talk about uh, not-for-profits and they say at the moment after the bushfires, you're seeing these memes on social media about the Red Cross and the Salvos and how they're lining their pockets with donors' money. And you say, what bullshit that is. Um, that The people that are saying that are the people that didn't give to them in the first place would be my bet. Um, and mm. secondly, for example, you know, the Salvos and the Red Cross and SYC and all those not-for-profits, we don't have any less obligation as directors than any other director in the uh, in the country of an organization we don't have a discount on legal costs or licensing fees or rent or um, wages um, or um, industrial relations requirements uh, safety requirements we have all of the same overhead costs as anybody else um, yet we're Apparently, we're supposed to not spend any money on that. We're also supposed to uh, underspend on marketing, um, while at the same time have to. Uh, we have people saying, "Well, why don't you just tell? Why don't you tell us more about what you do? Can you do all of that, but don't spend any money on marketing? Can you build capacity in the sector, but make sure you don't make any mistakes and waste money?" Whereas, you know, in the for-profit sector, that's called entrepreneurship um, and, and at-risk capital. But you can't do that in the not-for-profit sector because people get mad with you for um, wasting, apparently wasting money by taking unnecessary risks. And the other thing that's really interesting is that happens around remuneration. Now, I've got some of the smartest people in the country working at SYC and so have the Salvos and, and Mission and Red Cross. These people are really smart, really dedicated, really qualified, but uh, according to the media, we're not supposed to pay them very well because somehow, somewhere along the line, they must have done something wrong um, to deserve <laughs> to not get paid. To be working at a not-for-profit. <laughs> yeah. And and so when, when we look at that, um, the, my challenge to that, no, I've, I've had – people talk about remuneration and not-for-profit sector and I go, do you know, the CEO of one of the well-known tobacco companies in Australia gets paid seven figures and they kill people. Um, and But they've got um, investors to worry about and share market and all of those sort of things. Um, our organisation is a public company limited by guarantee. We have obligations to the ACNC. Can you imagine if the board paid me seven figures and we save lives. And my question would be, what is it that makes a tobacco company executive worth more and not worth more in dollar terms, but worth more in terms of people's view of what he's allowed to be paid compared to what I can pay one of my executives? 
if only if it was measured in terms of positive social impact, then uh, that would put it all into context. Wouldn't Ab- it? Absolutely, and that's why we're obsessed with um, measuring the, the the impact that we have and the return the return to the community that we provide. Because I think it's a it's a it's a measure that in if not now in the future, I hope we can as Australians. Um, really place more and more demand on organisations to prove. So you've talked a bit about uh, entrepreneurship and marketing. How much of a role does technology play in your business? And and over the years, you've obviously been there for 18 years. What's been the biggest game changer you've seen in terms of technology in your time at SYC? I, you know, I think technology plays a really important role, obviously, Um Narrowing it down to one, I, I couldn't narrow it down to one, but I'll, I'll give you several that I can think of. Most recently, just Microsoft Teams um, in responding from our whole organisation, 550-odd people um, now having to work really differently, really fast. Um, smartphones, um, in my time at SYC, we've gone from, you know, dumb phones to smartphones um, and, and apps amazingly um, important um, technology Um, but particularly I think um, now and in the future for us how we collect and analyze data and the opportunities that the cloud and 5g present for us in the collection and not so much in the collection of data but the interpretation of of data for, for me is really, really exciting. And what does that mean for your organisation in terms of uh, are you able to better measure the impact you're having or yeah. better understand your supporters, for example? Yeah, so if you drive past uh, at, at Curry Street on Light Square and you look up um, at the second floor, you'll see <laughs> stuck in my window is a is a, is a big diagram of, of how... I can I see technology working, um, and for data uh, and to the be- for better outcomes for our people. I can see how a person coming in uh, and speaking to with us with um, a data collection system in the background using voice recognition to pick up and start to segment um, all of the things that they're talking about. So if they've experienced a trauma and they're homeless, they're hungry. They're suffering mental illness or substance abuse. They haven't got work. Uh, all of those, they haven't finished their education. You can see, I can totally see how 5G and cloud-based software can start to generate. That person's just experiencing life, but government doesn't isn't constructed for life. Government is constructed in portfolios. So that person, in just in that one conversation, covered state government departments and federal government departments in employment, education, the health system, the justice system, um, child protection system maybe, all of those different systems they covered. Technology would allow um, direct connection with programs and uh, be able to, for us to be able to represent it back as just life steps in their life and cut out a lot of the administration. It would also be able to, if we can um, build the algorithm for it, in real time calculate the avoided cost at different intervals of responding earlier and in a more targeted way in that person's 
um, situation. And in doing that avoided cost and real-time evaluation, it's totally possible for Treasury to be able to allow a moving funding mechanism, um, perhaps even using um, blockchain technology, uh, to be able to allocate to organisations like ours resources in real time to be able to stop things escalating further out of control. So, and, and we're not even scratching the surface yet of, of how we how that could work in the next 10 years. Paul, I'd like to switch directions a little now um, and talk a bit about you, your personal life. Um, can you tell us a bit about your background, um, where you grew up, um, that sort of thing? Sure. Um, so I'm a uh, an Adelaide boy. I was born here in um, in, in Adelaide in 1968. To um, my my dad was um, a, a migrant, uh, an English migrant, and my mum uh, from family was a fairly successful um, Australian uh, multi generational Australian family. Um, I'm the eldest of three um, sons. Um, I'm the eldest of dozens of, of grandchildren um, and I was the first of those as well. But um, my two siblings, I have a, a brother who's two years younger than me and a brother who's 10 years younger than me. Um, and um, I, it was the arrival of my second brother um, that has had such a profound effect on, I guess, uh, the rest of my life and how my life has turned out. Um, yeah, I, I went to, I finished school. Um, I was fortunate to go to a Catholic school here in Adelaide and uh, I I finished school. When I finished school, I wanted to be a journalist um, and, I, you know, journalism at McGill at UniSA was a really elite course to get into. I worked really hard to get into it and then I got into it and went, oh, this isn't what I want to do. Um, so I, I switched into uh, communications, which back in the 80s was a, as a new thing. Um, and I, at uni, started my first business and, and realised that that starting businesses and running businesses was what I was really good at and liked doing. Can you tell us a bit about, you mentioned earlier that the arrival of your second brother uh, changed your life. Mm. Uh, in, what way, in what way did that happen? Um, my my youngest brother Nathaniel um, was born with multiple disabilities, um, and back in those days, they said to mum, you know, you put him in a home and think of having another one, or just forget about him. Um, and mum uh, is not somebody. I, I know where I get it from. It, from my, from my mother said, hell no, that's not going to happen. Um, and uh, she brought him home and um, and worked on on making him the most able person rather than focusing on his disabilities. She focused on what he would be able to do. Um, and as a as a ten year old, uh, I distinctly uh, remember. I, I, I still to this day am acutely aware that at that time. Um, as parents, they needed to devote all of their energy into him. Um, and I, I never felt, um, as part of that, I never felt any resentment about that. I never felt any 
anything other than, yep, that's what needs to happen. Um, but I also have a, an acute memory and an acute awareness of how uh, independent that meant I had to be as a 10-year-old. Um, and, and I think ever since then, I still have a fierce sense of um, that independence. Um, but also, I also have a, 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 an intense sense of um, it, it does come, it does speak to, I guess, I, I have the blessing and the curse of having a fierce intolerance of underperformance because Nathaniel, for somebody who isn't supposed to be able to walk or talk or do anything, um, has worked at Bedford in, in their um, parks and gardens division for 23 years now. Um, he gets up in the morning and he goes to work, rain, hail or shine. He is a good human being. He's a good citizen. He, he you know, he works hard and he's, he's very kind. He does art exhibitions. Um, he's still very vulnerable um, to people in the community. So when I hear people that don't have the kind of obstacles in front of him or the setbacks that he's had in his life, um, complain that they're a bit tired or they're, uh, you know, things are hard. I, I find that <laughs> I'm hard to tolerate. I'm, yeah, I find it really hard to tolerate. And that I think in sometimes makes me hard to tolerate too, because sometimes I could learn to be kinder about that. That's a good segue into my next question, which was going to be about um, role models uh, that have that have most influenced you over the years, mm. uh, Paul. Um, are there any that that come to mind, either in your early working career or growing up? Yeah, my, well, my my parents were certainly my role models growing up, and uh, as I as I I remember um, working for an uncle. Uh, when I was about 15, he was an early role model. I didn't know it at the time, but it, it shaped my career a lot. Uh, he had me working in a factory, which I found interminably boring. Um, and as a 15-year-old who already knew everything, I felt I, I thought that everybody would need to know how boring I found it. <laughs> so you spread the word. I spread the word. I thought if only these people knew how boring this was. Um, and he pulled me into his office and, and nearly killed me, saying, these people do this for a living and you're insulting them with every time you open your mouth. And he said, I don't care if you're bored and these people don't care if you're bored. In fact, they hate you. <laughs> they, um, so what you need to do in order to earn any respect back is go out there and, and work and you need to sing songs in your head, talk to yourself, do something to make it interesting, but for heaven's sake, work out how not to be bored and it was such a valuable lesson to me but in so many ways and in just how disrespectful i was to people who were working just how lucky i was to be getting a private education and how important it was to manage boredom um and to not waste your time um if you you know if you feel bored don't waste your time complaining about being bored um use that energy productively. So he was a really early role model for me. Um, and then I, um, my, my Scottish grandmother on my father's side was a, a powerful role model for me. Women um, have been powerful role models for me. My mum and my, uh, my Scottish grandmother on my father's side, I remember her saying to me, you need to leave 
get away. Um, you know, don't ask poor people how to make money. There's nothing I can tell you. Um, so go away. And uh, so I, I went to Sydney. And I never even I never I was 23. I never even visited Sydney, but I got in a plane and went there um, to go and start my career. <laughs> and I remember thinking, hell, I I didn't even have mu- enough money to get back. Um, but I, um, I I went there and and uh, I met a guy called Peter Ritchie, who was the guy who at 27 was the first non-American CEO of McDonald's. Um, and um, he foolishly said during one of the talks that I went to of his, said, oh, if you want to come and see me afterwards and ask me any questions, do so. And most people didn't really, but I did. And I spent the next eight years having dinner with him every um, once a month. Um, and I worked with him and he he invested in my business and I invested a lot of energy in, in supporting that business and sold out of that business. Um, so Peter Ritchie from um, then McDonald's was a huge influence on me professionally. I want to talk about uh, some of the roles that shaped you along the way as well, Paul. You've, you've been on a number of boards, uh, including the White Ribbon Foundation, mm-hmm. um, and you've been with SYC for 18 years. Um, did you always aspire to work in not-for-profit? No. <laughs> I, I, came to, I came to SYC for a year. This is, I was only going to be here for a year. Um, it, was, it was just one of those things where um, I, through my whole growing up, wanted to run things. I've always wanted to be a CEO or a managing director. I've always wanted to run things. That's why I started my first business at uni so i could say i was the boss um what was that what was that business as a matter of interest i was a f- doing freelance photography um back in the back in the 80s along main north road um there were all car yards in adelaide and on yep. wednesdays in the news the newspaper was really thick with all the ads from the car yards um and their photos were routinely pretty crap um, and again, because at that age um, I knew everything, I took it upon myself to tell them that. Um, and uh, they they paid me to take photos for them for their car ads. Um, and it was just extraordinary that these people would pay me for that. Um, and so they did. So that was my first business was um, taking photos for um, for a car yard or for a group of car yards. Um, and so, yeah, I, and I went, oh, this making this this business thing is really easy, and I get to tell people I'm the boss. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. And what did you do? So, in between uh, taking photos of the cars and uh, while you were at uni and working at SYC, what did you do in between there? So, I worked in. I had various. I tried my hand at sales, um, and I tried my hand at working in a in the photography industry, um, in a thing called a portrait place at, at back in those days. Um, I, I sold advertising for a little while, which was incredibly valuable for when I eventually got into my uh, water filtration business. And I um, that's where I moved to Sydney, and I got involved in a water filtration business as a salesperson that business didn't go well um it had lots of venture capital it's where i met peter ritchie and um (laughs) after it didn't go well um and most of the people got fired once again there's a a common theme here but 
Um, again, as a 24-year-old, I knew everything. So I, I took it upon myself to tell him what I think he did wrong. Uh, <laughs> and he said, all right, then, you do it. Uh, so <laughs> I did. I, I, I went out and I uh, registered my business name and, and set up a, a business selling water filters to the domestic market uh, and fortunate as, as luck would have it, there turned out to be a water crisis in Sydney, which is where my business was, um, where they had cryptosporidium in the water and our water filters got that out. Uh, so that business went gangbusters um, and suddenly I understood what exit strategy meant because, I, you know, <laughs> The thing, the thing about a rapidly growing business that I learned in that time was a slow, regular, organic growth is just fine. Um, then if you accelerate really fast, um, people think you're just on this fabulous roller coaster and drinking champagne. What, <laughs> what happens really is you find out that cash flow runs out really quickly and you can run up huge credit bills with suppliers before you get paid. And you better work out how to make sure everybody's getting paid and getting yourself paid all at the right time so that house of cards doesn't fall in on you. Yeah, uh, growing to death, they call it, don't they? Oh, mate. It was, you know, I, I learned I learned that I didn't have very good stock control because, you know, I hired all these plumbers who then stole the filters and because uh, I didn't, you know, have picking and packing slips. And so it was, you know, it was really valuable lesson. But um, during that time when the business grew, um, really quickly and really successfully, I was able to sell out um, and and get out of it um, successfully. And, and my daughter, that was 1999. My daughter arrived, and uh, uh, we moved back to Adelaide. So uh, you know, I'd had and, and moving back to Adelaide, I then uh, hooked up with um, a couple of people who were doing some consulting. I did some business coaching because. Peter Ritchie coaching me was a big part of my business success, so I thought I would pass that on by becoming doing some business coaching and I did some corporate governance consulting. I also, as part of that little company, uh, got into technology. We were trying to develop an online survey, which you, if you can imagine, back in 1999, trying to do an online survey where a couple of our biggest challenges was um, what if people don't have an email address um, it's almost impossible to think of it now, but you know that was the <laughs> that was a challenge, and and I, I can remember talking to the CEO of this silly startup in America called called Survey Monkey, going, "What sort of silly name is that?" Um, <laughs> and again, lecturing him on how we were smarter than him, um, and we because we were doing the same thing here in Australia, and we were going to do it properly, and of course. On this occasion, it turned out he was right and we weren't. <laughs> um, and so after that didn't go as well as um, we had envisaged, um, I, just, I, I had the opportunity to join SYC, uh, which I thought I would just do for a year. And here we are 18 years later. <laughs> and here we are. They haven't got rid of me yet. That concludes part one of our interview with Paul Edgington. Please join us for part two, where Paul talks about one of the toughest challenges he faced when one of his executives betrayed his trust and committed criminal fraud against the organisation. What impact did it have on the organisation and on him personally? And as leader, how did he deal with it? Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us.